I think you've seen me in a room with 2,000 other people ask people to chant a little rubric, which is, I am not the target market. I am not the target market. I am not the target market. And constantly, we need to be looking at how our perception or the perception of our board or our CEO or our colleagues in the advocacy program or whatever, you know, are we the target market for this message? Um, and what, what behavioral economics teaches us is how to adapt messages according to the specific target market. Hey there, and welcome to this episode of Group Thinkers. I'm your host, Justin McCord. Happy to be with you again. Thanks for checking out this episode. It's a, uh, it's a fascinating one, and, and maybe I say that about each one, but that's because I just I love our opportunity to bring together these innovators and uh, folks in the nonprofit marketing space that are working to do something unique and different to transform the way that we approach uh, marketing for philanthropy. Uh, so on today's episode, I've got Bernard Ross. Bernard is the director of the Management Center, uh, which is a, a UK-based consultancy. He talks a little bit about that. Uh, Bernard's also an author of a couple different books. Uh, the most recent is Change for Good. We talk a lot about that on this episode, and, and you can certainly pick up a copy of Change for Good on Amazon. Bernard also uh, gets into some of the practices of behavioral economics. And this is where, you know, the conversation for me was, was wonderful. Uh, we just talk about, you know, the, the ideas of how maybe we overthink things on the marketing space. And, and given the premise that, uh, we apply or appeal to the, the rational too often and, and don't, don't understand the uh, the target audience who's living in a space of channels coming at them all the time, so many different marketing messages, and that the irrational uh, might be more the space that we we need to live. And another way to say that would be don't overthink our marketing tactics, right? So, uh, so here's a conversation with Bernard Ross for you to dive into, uh, and then uh, stay tuned at the end. I've got something special that we'll share with you from Bernard. Well, good day, everyone. Uh, it's Justin here, and welcome to another episode of Group Thinkers. Uh, I am joined today by uh, Bernard Ross, who's joined me from across the pond. Good, uh, good afternoon to you, Bernard. How are things in the UK today? They're good, Justin. It's very nice to speak to you, and um, uh, fr from a slightly cold and damp UK, delighted to speak to you and your and your listeners. Yeah, yeah, we we appreciate you taking time, Bernard. You and I have been going back and forth across multiple time zones and and travels to to get this scheduled. So excited to be able to connect today, uh, Bernard. As we get started, you know, you, you're a uh, a speaker, an author, uh, a, you know, and a trainer as the director of the management center, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But uh, I, I always like to start my conversation with. Uh, folks in the nonprofit space of just kind of understanding your journey. Uh, I would love to know how how in the world did you end up in nonprofit marketing? Oh well, that's that's an interesting story. I guess um, there was certainly a point in my life when I was uh, at university and considering a more academic career, and there was a point when I was uh, getting very excited by as part of my MA thesis. Uh, 
aesthetic theories in the middle work of Sylvia Plath, which is about as about as academic as you can get. And then I, I think one day I thought, hmm, do I want to spend the rest of my life studying poetry, good, enjoyable as poetry is, um, and studying aesthetic theories? Or do I want to do something that seems more practical? Uh, and I kind of, I guess I kind of looked out of the university library window and thought I'd rather be out there in the real world. And from that got into community work and, and really from a community activist route got into fundraising because of course you need, you need money to take community action. So uh, not the most exciting or romantic story, but uh, a journey from the, the important but but rather precious field of academic work to to thinking how do I make a how do I make a how do I really make a difference in the world that that's how I did it I guess in, in taking you know taking that thinking into the the real world obviously with the work that you did as a community activist and now uh, you amongst your roles you help lead the charge with the management center uh, the the folks on the U.S. side of the pond may not be as familiar with the management center why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your team's focus there and some of the projects that you're involved in well we're, we're a tiny little uh, boutique management consultancy that does really three things there's a a group of people involved in learning development issues, looking at leadership, looking at uh, culture change. There's a group of people dealing with uh, management consultancy issues, strategic plans, stuff like that. And there's a group of people uh, dealing with fundraising. Now, in fact, if uh, there's a bit of an overlap there, if you think of that as being three, uh, three rings which overlap. Um, I think we're maybe not as familiar a name in, in the U.S., although, for example, we've done some big projects in the U.S. We we worked uh, two years ago with uh, the development director, fantastic development director called Thomas Kurman at Doctors Without Borders and helped him and his team. They did most of the work. We just provided some of the ideas. Uh, turn his team from being a, a $250 million a year operation to a $400 million a year operation in two years. So that was, you know, we, we tend to work with the big humanitarian organizations, uh, the Red Cross, Red Crescent, Doctors Without Borders, UNICEF. So we do, we tend to, in the fundraising space, we tend to do big projects like that. So people, we're not a household name, but then not many households talk about fundraising in a, in a humanitarian setting. Well, I, I like to think that uh, so many of our clients sit around and talk about us as management consultants, yeah. right? Like that's, that's their preferred topic of conversation is their agent, sure. right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I love that you mentioned the work that you, you've done with Doctors Without Borders and, and it has a connection to your new book that's coming out, uh, Change for Good. So, you know, I, I have this on order and I'm expecting to get it before the holidays so that I can dive into it. But, uh, you know, give us a little bit of an overview of Change for Good and what drove you to the content? Because it's, it's, it's kind of a remarkable topic that you're diving into with this new book. As I said, well, in fact, it is out now in Europe and I think you can get it in the US. Uh, we, and I, in fact, as you know, we, I've just come back from a, doing a tour, a book tour in um, New Zealand and Australia, promoting the book. Uh, I guess the story behind it is uh, a meeting I had with a, a remarkable man, uh, perhaps 
three and a half years ago, a chap called Omar Mahmoud, who has a fantastic job title. He's Global Head of Knowledge at UNICEF International. That's a great job title. It just reads um, well on a business card, right? Yes, sounds great. As a chat-up line at a party, reads well on the business card. Great thing to have on your resume. Um, and he, so he's in charge of a team of five people at looking at big trends and big issues in in uh, not just in fundraising, but in um, in uh, things like sexual health, reproductive rights, uh, uh, child poverty. And so, so he does that kind of research function for UNICEF. And he introduced me to a body of work commonly called behavioral economics, but also links to neuroscience. That, that kind of, and it's kind of the field of, the field of work which says, how do people make decisions? Uh, what do we know about, what do we scientifically know how people make decisions? Which obviously relates to fundraising as well as how do we make good decisions about our health, about uh, uh, our welfare, blah, blah, blah. So he, uh, he introduced me to this body of knowledge and, and over a, a period of a year, we began to plot to write a book. And then maybe two and a half years ago, we decided to write a book together, which then took us quite a long time uh, you know, two, basically two years to write, looking at um, how has that body of work, behavioral economics, how, how is it being used in the charitable sector, both for fundraising and in terms of, like I say, social welfare, health, education, and stuff like that. So the book's really about that, about how uh, charities and NGOs are using that body of knowledge, but also, of course, how businesses are using it. Uh, this is what, to some of your listeners, might be a new body of work. In fact, it's been well established in business for 10 or 15 years, and I think we have to catch up, really. Well, certainly, and there, there are many places or, or areas where nonprofits have found themselves slightly behind the curve on the application of either mental models or, or marketing techniques. Uh, one of the things in, in, uh, in previewing this latest book, Change for Good, that stood out to me was uh, just the idea with behavioral economics that uh, most of the time our, our rational thinking is limited by our ability to work things out. Uh, and and so these limitations that we have that we're uh, we're making decisions based off of, of of limited information and to me there there's an application or a jumping off point on both sides of the fundraising spectrum on the side of the marketer and what information we have there to make rational decisions and data points that we may have but then also for the end consumer that person who is uh, gaining exposure to the work of a nonprofit, if that's through direct marketing tactics, digital marketing tactics, etc. So this this decision science, this behavioral science, has application on both sides of the coin, right? So I was inspired by uh, Omar Mahmoud to study the work of Daniel Kahneman, uh, as I think you know, Justin, but maybe your listeners don't. Kahneman won the Nobel Prize for Economics ten years ago, uh, eleven years ago now. Uh, and he won the Nobel Prize for Economics despite the fact he's not an economist. Uh, and he came up with a model which said that we have two ways of making decisions, what he calls system one, a, a very fast, irrational, emotionally led model, and system two, which is a rational, logical model. We like to think that we mostly work from system two. And in fact, 
his argument is we mostly work from system one and that in order to get people to make fast, effective decisions, we as fundraisers or as social activists should concentrate on system one. That is the appealing to the, if you like, the irrational, illogical side of us. So is this, you know, uh, when you start to apply this into direct marketing tactics, the application of imagery, the application of headlines, is it something to where we see that people, they fill in the blanks and so really it's, it's about our ability to make things scannable so that they can quickly get to the point? That's one part of it. I mean, there are probably, uh, there are something like 145, 147 of these heuristics, these little rules that we have. Um, And maybe seven or eight of them are really important for, uh, certainly for fundraising. One of those is, as you've rightly pointed out, how do we make things scannable quickly? Uh, I think as fundraisers or as social activists, we tend to overshare information. We tend to give people too much information when the key issue is really what's called salience. Uh, how, how much information do we need to give people to make a decision? That is relatively little. Um, uh, if I can choose a maybe slightly inappropriate metaphor, it's more like Tinder, you know, where you're making a very quick choice, yes or no, rather than an elaborate dating profile. So how do we help people to make very fast decisions? Uh, is one one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is making a decision that um, that doesn't bring in our logical brain too much. So, to give you an example, maybe a very practical example, there's a famous experiment uh, run by Save the Children, quite a big children's charity, uh, called the Rockia experiment. And the Rockia experiment proposes two uh, two fundraising asks. One of which is. Let me tell you about Rokia. She's an 11-year-old girl. She lives in sub-Saharan Africa. She has, isn't able to go to school. She doesn't have enough to eat, blah, blah, blah. And then there's another version of the same appeal, which is, um, let me tell you about the 2 million children who live in Zambia. Many of them do not have enough to eat. Many of them are unable to go to school. Now, we all know logically that that second one is probably more like the real situation. And that Rokia, this individual little girl, is just, that sounds terrible, is only one, one child. And it's good to save one child, but that doesn't solve the problem. Now, what, um, what Kahneman and decision science teaches us is that if we offer the second proposition, um, people will tend to bring in their system two thinking and back away from, from helping at all. I mean, that's quite distressing. Whereas if you offer them one, the one child, the Rokia example, they will tend to say, oh, I can do something about that. I have agency. Now you then say, okay, well, that's, you know, maybe you need to try and um, begin with the heart, if you like, with Rokia, engage with this one child, and then bring people around to the head, tell them about the two million other kids. Um, what Kahneman and colleagues say is that actually, if you try and do that, you reduce the impact of the message. And in fact, if you, if you try and do what I've historically called heart and then head, you will do less well in fundraising terms. You will get less money um, 
from donors. And that, that's quite distressing because it kind of suggests that when the logic kicks in, we kind of go, hmm, I can't really solve this problem, so I won't try to solve it. This episode of Group Thinkers is brought to you by the RKD Group blog. You might be listening on a mobile device right now, and if so, you can go ahead and open up a browser window and visit rkdgroup.com slash blog. When you get there, you're going to find all sorts of resources tackling issues that are current in the nonprofit marketing space. There's channel-specific resources focused on direct mail, digital, multi-channel, and even omni-channel. There's also hot topics like GDPR, mid-level, digital media, look-back windows, and more. It's all over at rkdgroup.com slash blog. And now, back to Group Thinkers. There's this fine line within development departments of the application of these marketing principles and uh, behavioral economics principles versus overthinking and in mm. the space of overthinking of applying our own individual systemic way of boiling down an offer or an appeal to how we would respond to it versus what would be good in mass for our target audiences. And you probably, I think you've seen me in a, in a room with 2000 other people, um, uh, ask people to chant a little, um, a little rubric, which is, I am not the target market. I am not the target market. I am not the target market. And constantly we need to be looking at how, exactly what you've said, you know, how our perception or the perception of our board or our CEO or our colleagues in at the advocacy program or whatever, you know, are we the target market for this message? Um, and what, what behavioral economics teaches us is how to, adapt messages according to the specific target market. It's, uh, it's a fascinating topic, and, and certainly I would just encourage everyone to pick up a copy of Change for Good. It's available on Amazon, and so you can uh, pick that up and uh, dive into it. it uh, certainly dive into it more than once, and then, Bernard, as you're saying, uh, maybe start your next planning session with uh, the the cumulative chant or the corporate chant of I'm not the target market. So outside of this better depth of strategy, uh, what do you see as the major issues facing nonprofits today? Um, I think there's a number of things. One is, one is obviously, and I, I think this is true on both sides of the pond and probably globally is the, is the lack of trust that, that we have in so many of our civic institutions. I mean, we, we by and large don't trust politicians. We by and large don't trust lawyers. We by and large don't trust sports people. Uh, and sadly, I think we increasingly don't trust charities or NGOs. And that, that's quite worrying that, you know, we, uh, the public is skeptical about either our ability to deliver or the way money is used. So that's, that's a concern, that issue of public trust and how do we, uh, re-established public trust. The second thing I think is, which is kind of connected is that um, I'm sure you're familiar with the fact that in the US and in Europe, and I've just come back from Australia and New Zealand, basically um, the number of donors is pretty static and in some places even falling. So fundraising income is going up because there are more wealthy people around 
But the number of people involved in charitable giving is staying either static or slightly down and has been that way for maybe a decade. Now, that's very troubling because I, I think what that means is that the, if you like, the total amount of philanthropy in the world is not increasing. So a small number of people care more, but we need, goodness, I would hope that we had everybody caring. So that, that business about, uh, and maybe that's connected to the trust issue, that uh, we're not bringing enough people into the philanthropic space. And part of the rationale for that must be that I think we have either lost some trust or, or um, people are concerned about how, uh, how properly we are, we are behaving with money. I mean, there've been several candle, scandals in the States and in the UK that have really, really harmed public trust in charities. I would say those are the, to be honest with you, the two big things. They're, they're pretty existential things to worry about, but they are the two big issues we have to address. They're massive issues, and, and, uh, and there's no doubt that there has to be a relationship between the two, you know, public skepticism and trust. I, I recently uh, had the chance to chat with Amy Sample Ward, the uh, CEO mm. of the Nonprofit Technology Network, and, and she and I had a, a nice bit about fundraising and how you know that that there are some organizations right now or in the last two plus years that have thrived as a result of elevating the anger and the distrust towards some public institutions into mm -hmm. support for others and and where i wrestle with that bernard is that it it feels like that is a fundraising feels like it's almost a dark side of our heart, not the, the investment side of our heart, which is associated with traditional philanthropy of wanting to invest in growing good. This is investing mm -hmm. in, uh, in rage and anger as another emotion to tie to fundraising. So, so the, maybe the third pillar of, of where you're going with this is, you know, marketing is also getting more complicated because of the increasing number of channels or how channels work together or data and data points and data regulations. And so you have this kind of budding space of growing lack of trust, static uh, number of donors and the complications around marketing. Uh, you know, as a great management consultant, what, what would you tell a, a nonprofit that they should do? How do you work through these issues as it relates to an individual cause or the nonprofit marketing space as a whole? Where should we focus our time and effort and energy? Oh, that's, that's a big question. Uh, I think for me, some of the, some of the complication is unpurposeful. I mean, so I see lots of people investing massive amounts of effort in trying to become a digital agency or, you know, be, become more digital. And um, I just think that that's, uh, sometimes people maybe invest too much time in trying to become too clever and too, too tricksy. You know, they'll use virtual reality headsets and stuff like that. And I, I still believe, I don't just believe I see it working, that, you know, the fundamental issue of deciding who are you trying to talk to and what's the best way to communicate with them are the key things. And, and sometimes that is a digital thing, but, but as often as not, it's just a very simple act of 
of good DM, you know, a good letter or whatever will will actually just do the same the same business. I, I think sometimes, yeah, I think that's my biggest thing is that charities sometimes try and overcomplicated the the whole business about multiple channels or uh, I don't know or, or are confused because they're not the target market. I was I was um, again when I was in Australia and New Zealand, I just had at least a couple of people saying we need to talk to young people. We need to go onto Facebook. And I, I kind of had to say, I'm really sorry, young people don't use Facebook. You know, yeah, Facebook's <laughs> for the over 40. It's true. But, you know, that's not, uncommon, that's not an uncommon perception. You know, that, that, that a generation that was born before digital thing still think Facebook and Twitter are what young people do when, in fact, hardly any respectable young person will be seen dead on Facebook or Twitter. So... Yeah, that kind of confusion. So, you know, being clear about what it is you want to say and um, who you want to say to. But at the same time, accepting, go back to my previous point, that people are not um, logical. I'll give you a nice example from Greenpeace Argentina. And you, you know the answer as soon as you get the question, but the, the question should make you go, goodness, why is that? So Greenpeace Argentina ran up, rang, rang up its supporters, made a telephone call. And said, "Okay, would you like to make a special gift in honor of someone a special day? So we will put on the website, you know, we will honor someone or something." And did. And the the choices we were offered were um, the Argentinian National Day. So we, would you like to make a gift, and your name will be associated with the National Day? Now, Argentinians are a super proud people, so that was a good proposition. They had another proposition where, would you like to name a day in honor of your mother? And, you know, mothers are very important everywhere in the world. There was an, a proposition saying, would you like to honor a day in honor of your wife or girlfriend or, or boyfriend? And then the fourth one was, would you like to honor your pet? So as I asked the questions, you, I guess you've come to the answer or the conclusion, which is that most people prefer to honor their pet above the Argentine, Argentinian National Day, their mother or their their wife or girlfriend or boyfriend. So what? That's there's a side of me that says that's a kind of madness that people would rather pay a hundred dollars to honour their pet than any of those other loved ones. The reality is that that's just true, and maybe we should just accept that that's the way people are. If they want to honour their pet above others in order to save the environment, well, let's go with that flow. At least let's go with that flaw to the extent that we can scale it, right? And uh, yeah, yeah. and in some ways that that feeds into you know you you sew back into that uh, that skepticism that we're developing because as marketers we are taught to look we need to edge towards the scalability. How do we optimize something so that we can convert the most, even if it means mm-hmm. us setting aside something that. You know, would make more sense maybe in, in other circumstances. Yeah, and going back to my example about the Rockia experiment we talked about earlier, I mean, we, um, you know, we, we need to recognize that on the one hand, addressing some of the big social injustices in the world, whether they are domestic, like homelessness or mental health treatment or um, internationally poverty lack of literacy whatever that those those are huge systemic issues which really require more than just charitable work i mean they require governments to work together they require businesses to work together um but 
but we also but part of that is also individual people but they they don't want to hear about or can't engage with the big numbers with the this you know the scale of the number of people impacted on by hiv or the number of people who are don't have literacy opportunities in in the developing world you know we need to give them the rockiest the, the little bits which is solvable um the one person that they can help and that's the idea of agency is becoming increasingly important. What, what can you solve? Now, if you're Bill Gates, you can solve a lot of things. You can solve a lot of things if you're Bill Gates, but then relatively few of us are Bill Gates. So it's the idea of like, what, what can you offer people to, what can people, what can people solve? Yeah. I think I sometimes say is that we need to become, um, uh, Fundraising has become more like breaking bad. You know, we, we need to become drug dealers. And the drugs that we deal in are dopamine and oxytocin. Those are the two drugs that flow through our bodies. We know from neuroscience that when you do something philanthropic, um, uh, we very often feel dopamine, the, the kind of feel-good drug that we naturally have. And oxytocin is the drug that is very often uh, keyed in when we feel empathy, uh, you know, when we see see someone that we care about or might care about in distress so we need to recognize what can we do that drives those two drugs um because people like to feel empathy and like to feel good and uh, the question is what does that rather than what appeals to people being rational about the way they do things yeah you know and, and even to that point uh, our team right now is running an experiment uh, that i'll have to report back one to you and then just to the the group on mm-hmm. and and what we're trying to see is how soon uh, can you get someone to to give a second gift following their initial gift? And uh, the the hypothesis that we're going off of is the halo effect. You know, mm-hmm. is, it varies by channel, right? So maybe it's thirty to sixty days in analog channels, but maybe it's thirty to sixty seconds in online mm-hmm. channels. So when mm-hmm. when there's that extreme high, you know, firing of dopamine and, and the feel good moment of having just contributed. Is that the right time? Is that the most optimal time to get them to, uh, to get a, a new donor to say, yeah, you know what? I, I know I just made a gift, but now is a good time for me to become a monthly donor or to give a second gift, et cetera. So it, it does take that and apply it into marketing tactics. Mm-hmm. And, and you've said an important thing that for people to feel good about doing that, and certainly not to feel guilty, you know, they feel guilted into doing it or, or, or to feel pressured so that subsequently go, goodness, I, I don't feel good about that thing I did. Um, I, feel, I was pressured or conned into doing it. People need to, need to feel that they're doing a good thing, a good thing for them. Yes, absolutely. So, so Bernard, tell me, tell me what's next. What's on the uh, the horizon as you look into you know 2019? What what's happening with the management center? What what's on your calendar? When are you going to be back in the states? Um, well, I think we're we're talking about organizing a big um, a big uh, seminar on um, neuroscience in the U.S. That should be probably possibly in conjunction with some of the bridge people. We're, we're talking about organizing a big seminar just on that topic at the moment. Um, uh, I'm discussing writing another book now on specifically on fundraising implications of the, the um, behavioral economics work 
as you probably know, for, or when you get your copy of uh, Change for Good, uh, Change for Good looks not just at fundraising, but also at things like social welfare, poverty reduction, uh, looking after your own health, looking after your mental health as well as your physical health. So it, it goes across a range of topics, uh, a range of areas where behavioural economics can work and fundraising is one part of it. But I, I think there's a space for fundraising, so I'm planning to do that. Um, interestingly, I'm in January, I'm on, on my way back out to Dubai, to um, uh, the Gulf states, so Qatar, Saudi Arabia, places like that, working with... Um, the UNHCR team there, and they, they've they asked me to work on, they only deal with people who can give seven-figure gifts or more. And that's kind of wealth there is out there. So if you can imagine having a, a fundraising team of 20 people whose job is only to deal with people who can give seven gifts or more, that gives you an idea of the kind of wealth there is in that part of the world. And, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to doing that, using some of the techniques we've discussed with those very high-value donors. Some fascinating projects on the horizon and certainly as uh, an opportunity comes up for people to connect or, or dive deeper into behavioral economics in a seminar format, we'll make sure and, and talk about that and make sure that people are aware of it. Uh, lastly, Bernard, uh, how can folks connect with you? Where can they find you online? Well, uh, several ways. All the usual old people um, ways, Facebook. <laughs> Uh, for your for your older readers, for your older listeners, um, uh, they can connect with us at uh, the website, which is www management center with the word center spelled the UK way, which is c e n t r e dot co dot uk. They can find some downloads there. But just uh, I mean, it's been great having a conversation like this with you. I hope people have got some idea that um, a that the there are some new techniques which are helpful called behavior economics be that they are not, they are simple but not easy, if that distinction makes sense. You know, the, they're a bit like E equals MC squared. You know, the great, the great formula that describes the way the universe works that seems very simple, but actually the underlying science is very complicated. I suppose I like to think about behavioral economics as being the, the, the Einstein bit of, um, of uh, the future of marketing. Absolutely. Love it, Bernard. Thanks so much for, for hanging out with me today. And uh, we'll, we'll definitely catch up down the road. Okay. Very nice to speak to you, Justin. All right. So that's the, uh, that's the Bernard Ross chat. Uh, what a good dude. What a good dude. It was something that, that stood out to me about what Bernard shared. I uh, wrote this down along the way uh, was that we spend too much time trying to become too clever. Now, Bernard's not talking about, you know, just online or just direct mail. But, but again, it's that, it's that idea of, of overthinking. And, and maybe in that, uh, it's even how we benchmark ourselves against other organizations versus ourselves. Maybe in that, it's uh, looking at organizations that have evolved or excelled in a particular channel. Uh, you know, We've had so many conversations with nonprofits who look at uh, folks that are digitally mature, nonprofits that are exceptionally digitally mature and that are excelling in brand presence in the nonprofit marketing space. And they want to be that organization. And maybe that's not the right way for us to approach uh, transforming 
our program. So uh, listen, as Bernard mentioned, he, uh, he shared with us a download. And so that download is free and available to all of the Group Thinkers listeners. And so if you want to get a copy of that, uh, the download that he mentioned there, it's a kind of a shortcut to behavioral economics. Here's what you got to do. You got to do two things. One, you got to follow us on Twitter. Second, you have to uh, subscribe to Group Thinkers. And then third, drop us a line uh, on email, podcast at rkdgroup.com. That's podcast at rkdgroup.com. So do those three things. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Group Thinkers. Second, subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app. And then third, drop us a line, podcast at rkdgroup.com. Be happy to continue the conversation with you through any of those channels and uh, certainly hand off to you the, the information that Bernard shared with us so graciously. So that's it. Uh, Bernard Ross, thanks for tuning into this episode of Group Thinkers, and we'll see you down the road. Group Thinkers is a production of RKD Group. For more information, check out rkdgroup.com slash podcast. Special thanks to Becky V and the team for all the production work on this and every episode of Group Thinkers.